Niagara Falls, city of wonder, city of light. A city where nature's full range of sublime power and terrific beauty are on display. From the maid of the mist to the devil's hole, from suicide point to the country's largest sect of traditionalist, mystic, psychic hydroculturalists. There's too much to enjoy in just one day. So stay a night with us, or stay forever right here at Hotel Niagara. Uncle knows how much this trip means to me. Most boys my age have already become men in our community. Some have even taken wives and assumed prominent roles in the farmhood. But my passage to maturity has been waylaid by my weak heart and a proneness to boils. So to accompany my uncle, the most respected figure in the Isidorian community, on a long journey to survey some land in Canada that may indeed be our future home, fills me with profound pride. We have been driving northeast from Ohio on a hot summer day for about six hours. So far on the journey, there's been very little conversation. Uncle knows better than to waste words when they're not necessary, but I can't wait to rattle off the many stories from our travels when I return home to my friends and siblings, like when I saw the crazy three-wheeled motorcycle or the green dinosaur statue at the gas station. <laughs> that was funny. I don't know much about this trip, 
Uncle only told me we were meeting some other Isidorians to potentially purchase several acres of fertile green land, with many a gully for the farming of water. I've heard rumors of a massive project in the works, where Isidorians from across the country are joining up to cross over to the other side together. The other side of the border, I'm assuming. On the peninsula where the mighty Niagara River meets Lake Ontario. There is a nearby colonial-style town there, I'm told, where we can sell our produce and crafts and distribute the Sunflower, our monthly newsletter of water, agriculture, and faith. The location also happens to sit near what our holy books refer to as hydro-terrestrial correspondence points of divine energy, which converge close by. Uncle knows that this is the right time to move the community. A move like this would offer a new beginning. Not only have we outgrown our homestead in Ohio, but our community has struggled greatly of late since the terrible disappearance of my young cousin Elijah last summer. As for me, I am giving my all to suppress my uncomely hopeful giddiness. The trees along the highway go by in a blur, but the miles cannot be covered fast enough, as I just cannot wait to be one of the first to set eyes on this new land of promise where I may one day raise a family and pull my firstborn from the rising water of a deep well, just like St. Isidore. We are now entering New York State, and the feeling in my heart is growing more intense and may not be entirely attributable to anticipation. When I press my hand to my chest, I feel my heart pound with no discernible rhythm. It is more like a spasm than a beat and there is an annoying twitch underneath each eyelid. As I close my eyes, I see colors that I have never seen before or imagined, slowly expanding outward, colors and patterns bleeding into each other, creating spirals, marbling, and sometimes exploding and dissolving like a show of fireworks. Time is flickering. Here now, out now, here now. I open my eyes, but instead of the highway in front of me, I see my sister's face, smiling into a white beam of crystal sun. The animals from our farm seem to be smiling also. Beyond them in the distance, I see a woman in white running on water with two hounds beside her. And now there is nothing. I cannot move. I am paralyzed. No, I have completely shut down. Everything has let go. I am not alive. My eyes have closed, but I can still see everything around me in some sort of wide circle of vision outside of my body. I see my uncle sitting next to me, totally unaware of my passing. I didn't even have a chance to say goodbye to him. I didn't say anything at all. I was too distracted by the sensation of dying for it to properly register as death. I never really got to know uncle and assume this time spent with him would be a chance to learn about him and from him. Instead, he barely said a word to me, and now here I am, lifeless in the seat next to him. I wish there was some way to communicate with him now, but it doesn't seem possible. I am completely severed from my body, as if trapped in a frightening dream from which I cannot wake. But this is not a dream, and I am not afraid. I have been dead for nearly two hours now, and Uncle has yet to realize it. My head has fallen to the side, with my mouth gaping wide open 
a position that one could easily interpret as deep sleep. The last sign on the road said we were entering Buffalo. That was 20 minutes back. And now uncle is pulling off into a service station. He mumbles something about urination. My lack of response does not seem to faze him. We pull into the parking lot. Uncle gets out and stretches his arms and back. He pulls a bottle of juice from a pocket in the car door and finishes it. He opens the back door and tosses the empty bottle in. He grabs some seeds from a Ziploc bag while he's back there and pops them into his mouth. He chews and looks down at his feet on the hot pavement. Finally, he addresses my corpse. Okay, Joseph, time to wake up now. He says from the outside of the open door. He ducks inside the car from the driver's side, slightly annoyed, and shakes my shoulder good. Joseph, hey, Joseph. Joseph? My head rolls back on my neck and lands with a thud against my window. Uncle simply nods. He looks to see if there are any people around and now slides back into the car. He whispers, shakes me rough, licks his fingers to check my pulse, nods again. Uncle now starts the car, but only drives it a few yards back into the service area parking lot where there are no cars around. He is rolling his phone in his hand, unsure if he should use it or not. Uncle knows that he can't call an ambulance right now. Authorities will not allow him to continue transporting my body, and it's against our religion to allow a body to be handled by someone other than a member of our faith, or to inject a body with chemicals and all that stuff they put in a body before burial. Our natural bodies must be tossed in a river as soon as possible after death. Uncle fully reclines my seat to make it look all the more as if I am sleeping. He cracks a window and he walks towards the service area, disappearing into a building that says it has a McDonald's, a Sparrow Pizza, a Burger King, a Starbucks, a pretzel factory, and a Frank's Loaded Taters, all under one small roof. Even though we are prohibited from eating this kind of food, it's too bad that I cannot join my uncle to experience such a fascinating place. Uncle has now been in the service area for more than 40 minutes. He must be collecting his thoughts and making arrangements for how to handle the situation. Many thoughts have gone through my own head, if it is indeed my head that thoughts go through now, but they are surprisingly removed from feelings. I can say that I will miss my family. I can say that I am afraid of what's next. I can say that I am disappointed that my life has been cut so heartbreakingly short. But honestly, I would only be saying these things. I have no feeling about any of it really. No sadness, no fear, no real longing. Suddenly. Everything just is, and I cannot force myself to feel any other way about it. So far, death is not quite what our holy book said it was going to be like. But as with everything else, I don't feel anything about it. All I feel is a strange openness, as if my spirit self is one big orifice. My uncle is now emerging from the service area, carrying a bag. It is a bag from McDonald's. He opens his door and places the bag on the floor beside his feet. Uncle must have been so very hungry from grief at my passing that he had to break our usual dietary restrictions and choose hot, substantial food 
over the breads and dried fruits that we have packed for the journey. He starts the engine, eats some fries that he had stored in his shirt pocket, picks at his ear, looks at me, and races back out onto the highway, causing my head to do a full circle until it lands squarely on the dashboard. We've reached the last exit before the border in Niagara Falls, New York. Uncle must realize there is no going further. He knows he cannot bring a dead body across the border. This is as far as we go. He pulls into a motel. The sign looks old and melted. The name of the establishment is indiscernible. There are no other cars in the parking lot. There's an ice machine, a sun-bleached old pop vending machine, and a huge mound of discarded belongings taking up two parking spots. This is not any kind of place that people in our community usually stay, but these are extreme circumstances, and Uncle knows best. He hurries into the motel office, which, like the rest of the motel, looks abandoned. But he inserts a coin into a large bronze machine on the desk, and a key pops out. Uncle returns to the car, collects his McDonald's and a small travel bag, and heads into the motel room, leaving me in the car. I am alone and dead, which is no different, I have come to understand, from being dead and in the presence of others. Uncle has been in the motel room for nearly an hour. Everything has been very quiet. There hasn't been any activity in this motel. Uncle has occasionally opened the door of the room to check on the car. He does this again now, looking to the left, then the right, he is thinking. He approaches the car this time and opens the door to check on me. It's quite late at night, but the temperature has barely dropped. I can't say that my body is smelling very good in this muggy air. Some of what was inside of me has also leaked out. Not a lot, just a slow release of some excess pee and poop. Enough to make an enclosed area disagreeable. And that is apparent from my uncle's facial expression. He leaves me, but quickly returns with a sheet. He wraps my body in it the best he can, continually keeping a lookout around the parking lot. Then he pulls me out of the car. I'm half hanging in, half hanging out, all twisted up in the sheet which is now barely covering anything. He wraps my arm around his head and lifts me up, carrying me like a big swaddled baby in his arms. I like that. He struggles, but reaches the room, closing the door behind him with his foot and dropping me as gently as he can on the carpet. He drags me by my ankles to the bathroom and lifts me up into the tub. He turns on the shower, letting it run cold on me while he runs out of the room, grabbing a small plastic garbage can on the way out. He returns with that garbage can filled with ice from the motel ice machine and dumps it into the water with me. Uncle can now relax a bit. He checks around the room opens the small fridge, then looks under the bed. Uncle is curious. Either that, or he is looking for something. He looks to the night table drawer and slowly opens it. Nothing in there. He opens the second drawer below and pulls out a shirt that must have been left behind by a previous guest. It's a brightly colored shirt, well worn but folded neatly. It's the type of shirt I sometimes see being stored in crates at the auction house. I believe it's called tie-dyed. 
Uncle inspects the shirt thoroughly, rubbing the material between his thumbs and forefingers. He even presses it to his face and holds it to his forehead. He smells it, smells it good. He brings it with him as he sits by my body in the iced tub. He puts his head down on the back of his hand against the plastic lip of the tub. Poor uncle is exhausted. He remains in this position as he finishes his leftover cheeseburger. He returns to the bed, lays back and puts the tie-dyed shirt over his face. He stays like this for some time without moving, just breathing, with the shirt covering his face and his hands to his sides. Now he moans. He breathes in, moans louder, lower. Now he is silent, his breaths getting longer, deeper, the shirt rising and falling with each breath. He turns over onto his stomach as if in a trance. His face is sleepy and doughy like a baby. It rests flat against the bed. He slides the shirt along the bed and against his chest. Two-fisted, he squeezes it to his body and wrinkles up his face. He curls his legs up, making himself into a ball. Now he rocks himself from side to side, first slowly, now faster he goes. He holds the tie-dye shirt tight near his parts. Oh, now he is pumping it into the air as he rocks and bringing it down into his face, which he throws back and forth. He is expressing himself in a very peculiar way for a grown man, seemingly both attacking and cuddling the t-shirt. He is pumped up and down perhaps 10 times now, faster and faster. His eyes are closed, 20 more pumps with his whole body into it now, and suddenly his eyes pop open and he abruptly stops, jumps to his feet, and he tosses the shirt at the baby blue curtain in front of him. What do you care? Now he peeks out the window, barely pulling the curtain back, just enough to peek out. He turns, looks to the carpet, and makes an exasperated fist at it. Something is troubling Uncle. He picks up the t-shirt from the floor, holds it in his arms, and weeps. Is he crying for me? Is he crying for Elijah? Is he crying for some other reason that I just don't understand? Whatever the reason, the t-shirt comforts him. His cries turn into a laugh as he curls up on the bed with the shirt, rests it against his cheek, and falls asleep. It is morning now, just after dawn. Uncle is making the bed and preparing to leave. With the exception of a single shriek coming from somewhere outside in the distance, the night has been extremely quiet. At one point, Uncle woke up to use the bathroom. When he was finished, he sat down beside me and observed my body. He moved my arm up and down, surely noticing some stiffness. He opened one of my eyelids and looked into my eye. His head circled as if he were looking for something behind my eye and then he touched my eyeball. He pressed it a little more firmly a second time to see what would happen, and his finger went right through my eye, knuckle deep. Then he closed my eyelid again. He smiled as he wiped his finger on his slacks. After Uncle left the bathroom, 
he removed all of his clothes, except for his large black traditional beaver hat, which I've never seen him remove. And then he did some stretching in total nudity before putting on the tie-dyed t-shirt. He ran his hand round and round the front of it, then traced the designs on the front with his finger. It was at this point when I could clearly see what was printed on the shirt. Keep truckin', it said. And below it was a very pleasant parade of dancing bears. A delightful shirt, although not very modest. It looked very tight on him, but he was comfortable enough to sleep in it. He slept peacefully for the rest of the night. Uncle is very careful in returning me to the car, loading me into the back seat, draped in the same white sheet. He is still wearing the tie-dyed shirt. He stands out near the hood of the car and removes his hat. For the first time in my life, I can see his hair, a waterfall of long matted locks. He gives a grin and flings his hat like a saucer onto the pile of garbage in the parking spot next to us. He slowly walks over to the driver's seat, gets in the car, and then looks back to address me. Ready to help us all cross over, Joseph? By way of some holy miracle, I respond. Some not-quite-human sound emanates from my mouth while my tongue hangs out of it. Uncle drives on towards the Rainbow Bridge to Canada with a satisfied look on his face. He turns on the radio. It's a strange song about a man named Casey Jones. (laughs) ¶¶ 